This morning we begin a new sermon series on the subject of the church, in particular looking at the worship and the work of the church. And this morning, rather than addressing any particular subset of that topic, I want to make the biblical case for that topic. That is, I hope to demonstrate the importance of worship as a subject of worship. I mean, think about that for a moment. Is it, it, it's a little strange to talk about what we're doing in the midst of doing it. To preach and teach on worship in the midst of the worship service. I'm reminded of one of my early teaching jobs, the uh, public school I was at in Michigan, the, the recent alumni would come back from the university, and it was interesting. They would say, they would talk about how, you know, all of my high school teachers talked about getting us ready for college, but Mr. Swain, he actually did it. I suppose there could be some of us this morning who are saying, rather than talking about worship, let's actually worship, much like Mr. Swain actually got them ready for college. And yet, I think we can make the case today, make the biblical case, that we need to spend time learning about, studying about, hearing from God about worship. And so with that in mind, I want to open up with prayer and ask the Holy Spirit's guidance, and we'll jump into the biblical case for why we need to study worship. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we do ask for your guidance this morning, your direction in this service, that you would be the one who speaks to us, and that in speaking to us, we would hear what we need to hear, that we would, uh, by your grace in our hearts, we would desire to obey and to conform to your word, and ultimately to please and to glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So why study worship? Why does worship matter? I think you could make a lot of good biblical arguments. I'm going to make eight of them this morning. I'll move through most of them pretty quickly, so it won't be that long. Um, There are others that we could consider, but I think these eight are a great place to start. And again, I'll remind you, I'm not talking about why we should worship. That'll come later this summer. I'm talking about why we should talk about worship, why we should study worship. So why does worship matter? The first point I'd like to make is this. Worship is our reason for being. Worship is our reason for being. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, be on your guard. When the pastor comes with that many post-it notes and that many pages of his Bible, you know we're going to be flipping around a lot. So get ready. Here we go. Turn to Romans 11.36. Romans 11.36. Romans 11.36. Romans 11.36 says this. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To him are all things. Why do you and I exist? Why are we here? Why were we created? It is for God. For his glory forever. To him are all things. Things. 
In Colossians 1.16, it said this way, All things were created through him and for him. To him are all things, for him are all things, in two different places. And of course, how do we as Presbyterians sum this up? Well, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When you glorify someone and enjoy them, what are you doing? You're worshiping that being, that something. The main, one of the important reasons we should study worship, we should care about it and learn about it, is because it is why we exist. It is why we were created. A second reason. Not only looking back, why are we here, but looking forward, where are we headed? Worship is our destiny. Worship is our destiny. Point number two. Look at Revelation 7, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 7 Verses 9 through 11. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 11. John has been taken up back in chapter 4 of Revelation. John has been taken up by the Spirit into the throne room of heaven. And he shares now a portion of his vision. Revelation 7, 9 through 11. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne around the, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. In addition to being the reason we have been created, worship is also our ultimate destiny. It is where we are headed. And therefore we ought to know something about worship. So the first point is worship is why we exist. Our second point is worship is where we're headed. It is our destiny. And point number three, worship is why we are redeemed. Why we are redeemed. Please turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. And while you're headed there, I'm going to read a few other things that come before that. We'll get to Exodus 19 in just a moment. So in the lead up to Exodus 19, we have uh, God setting his people free from Egypt. We see in the, the account of the plagues, I'll start first of all in Exodus 7.16. Exodus 7.16. And you shall say to him, that is, you, Moses, shall say to him, Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. That word serve, avad, it is a word that also means worship. Serve in the sense, it's a play on words. They were servants of Pharaoh, but they are to be servants of God. They are to worship and work for God. And in fact, in the next ten plagues, uh, uh, six times we see that specific language used in the run-up to each plague. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me. And then in the aftermath of the 10th plague, you recall the 10th plague was the plague on the firstborn of all the households of Egypt, the Passover. 
And in the aftermath of the 10th plague, in uh, uh, Exodus 10.31, I must have made an error in my note here because there is no verse 31 in Exodus. Okay, oh, 12.31, I'm sorry, Exodus 12.31. There it is. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve Yahweh as you have said. You see, Pharaoh got the message. He understood why this was happening. It was so that the people could worship their God. The reason God redeemed the people out of Egypt was so that they might worship. Now, Exodus 19, where you have had your finger, looking at verses 5 and 6. This is the aftermath of the Exodus. The people are now free from the Egyptians. And God is addressing them, and here's what he says to them. Verses, uh, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is the need for a kingdom of priests? What are priests? Priests are those who lead in worship. They were to be a nation of worshipers, not just that of worship leaders. They were to be a nation that was to lead everyone else into worship. Why did God set them free from Egypt? So they might worship. Flip over to the New Testament. You actually stay there. In Exodus 19, I'm going to jump over to the New Testament and look at some of the language that picks up some of that, reflects some of that. Peter, he's writing in his first epistle, Peter, 1 Peter 2, 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. And again, I seem to have made, wow, I'm struggling with my references today. Too many typos. Well, I don't see where I went wrong on that one. So my apologies. Is it over here in one nine? No, I don't see it. Well, anyway, Peter writes there in his first epistle. You'll have to find it later. Never trust me on this. Peter writes to them. He's writing to the elect exiles. In other words, to all of the elect of God, not just to Jews at this point. And he writes to them and says, God has called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, you're still in Exodus 19. That's the same language. He reflects and says, look it, you have been elect of God for the purpose of being priests, worshipers, and worship leaders. Revelation, John writes in Revelation 1, verses 4 and 5 and 6, John says, to the seven churches in Asia. And then he offers the usual greetings of that time period. Then in verse 5, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Like Peter, John takes the language of the Exodus and applies it to all the believers and says, this is why you have been set free. To be worshipers, to be priests in worship, leaders of worship. 
We exist in order to worship. We are destined for worship. We have been redeemed for worship. And worship is commanded. Think about Exodus 20, verse 8. Shortly after that that Exodus 19 that you're in, when the Ten Commandments come forward, what is commandment number four? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Set aside a day for worship. What was our call to worship today? Psalm 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Direct commands to worship. Think about how Jesus responds to Satan during the temptation in the wilderness. Satan has said to Jesus, you know, I am the prince of this world. I am the ruler of this earth. And if you will worship me, I will give it all to you. And how does Jesus respond? In Matthew 10, 4, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. Another command to worship. Now, something interesting goes on in the scriptures. These commands are, reflect what is sometimes called the prescriptive will of God. The prescriptive will of God. That is, what he prescribes. What he wants us to do. But, but there is freedom to not do it. These commands, so far as we have seen them, fall into the category like, thou shalt not murder. You can obey it, you can disobey it. But something interesting happens. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we'll be looking at verses 10 and 11. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And that word should, some of your translations have the word will bow, and I think that's probably a better translation. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This reflects another reality about the commandment to worship. We see here that it goes from being a prescriptive command to a declarative command. Have you ever thought about the way God issues commands? There are different ways. He says you shall not murder, but there is freedom to obey or not obey. But he also said, let there be light. And there was light. Those sorts of commands from the mouth of God cannot be defied. They are declarative commands. They are decretive commands. He says it, and it is so. And one day, worship will become that. It is today a prescriptive command of our God. It will one day be a decretive command of our God. It will happen. It will go from command to demand. And that's what we see in Philippians 2. Worship is commanded today and one day will be demanded. It is the reason we have been redeemed. Worship is our destiny. Worship is our reason for existing. But at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, pastor, you've made an interesting case, but it's not a, 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 a conclusive case You really have uh, told us why we ought to worship, but so far really haven't made the case for why we have to study worship. So let's just move on and worship.
Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 4. Go to Genesis chapter 4. Quick reminder of where we are in human history. Genesis 1 and 2 are the account of creation. Genesis 3 is the account of our human fall into sin and our banishment from paradise. And Genesis 4 opens up with the account of what happens next. Follow along Genesis 4. I'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. What have we got here? We've got worship happening. It's amazing how often we jump right into the murder that occurs here and we skip over the fact that what we have going on here is worship. This is one of the earliest uh, post-Eden records of what humanity does. It worships. Picking up there, and Abel, uh, verse uh, 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 4, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? What is the clear implication there? The clear implication there is that there is a right way and a wrong way to worship. Now, we're going to come back later in the summer and look at what was right and what was wrong here. But for right now, we just need to recognize this. While worship is instinctive, worship is an automatic activity of human beings, right worship is not. Right worship has to be taught. And that is our fifth point. Worship, to be done rightly, has to be taught. It has to be instructed. We have to be shown how to do it. Because we can easily go wrong. Closely related to that, our sixth point, the scriptures give a great deal of attention and space to worship. You might be surprised if you actually started to go through the scriptures and take a look at how much of it is focused on worship. It's more than you might realize. We spent a lot of time already in the book of Exodus. Let's just stay there for the moment and use this as an illustration. So what is the story of Exodus? Well, you say it's the story of the people getting out of Egypt. But that's really only the chapters 1 through 14. Out of 40 chapters, 40 chapters... Only 1 through 14 are the account of the people getting out of Egypt. Chapter 15 is the celebration of getting out of Egypt. Chapters 16 and 17, 18 and 19 are the early accounts of the survival of the people once they get out of Egypt. Uh, Water from the rock, uh, bread from heaven, uh, um, oh, controversies among the people. Isn't that interesting? The three things that threaten their existence. Water, food, And controversy. And Jethro coming to Moses and telling him how to handle the controversies and how to deal with them among the people. So that takes us up to chapter 19, less than half of the book of Exodus. So what are chapters 20 
through 40 given to? Well, they're given to the rules for worship. That's most of the rest of the book of Exodus. Starting in chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to idols. You shall worship on every seventh day. Moving into the accounts of how worship is to be structured. How the tabernacle is to be built. Who can go into the tabernacle. What they must wear. All of the details of what earthly worship must be like. You say, well, Scott, that's the Old Testament. Take a look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapters 10 through 16, seven chapters of 1 Corinthians are focused on public worship. And you say, well, Scott, I thought 1 Corinthians 13 was the love chapter. Right. Smack dab in the middle of a debate about which spiritual gifts ought to be used in worship and which ought not to be. Paul says, and if you will love one another, then you can figure out how to worship together. You see, the problem they were having was the same one they were having back in Exodus. Disputes and controversy were threatening to tear apart the worship of God's people. A great deal of the Bible is given over to the subject of worship. I've only scratched the surface with those two examples. So if we're going to preach the full counsel of God, if we're going to talk about all that this book talks about, then we ought to spend some time talking about worship. Worship is why we exist. Worship is what we are destined for. It is why we were redeemed. It is commanded. And though it is instinctive, we need instruction, guidance to do it rightly. And worship is a major focus of the scriptures. Our seventh reason this morning, I told you we'd move through these fairly quickly. We're going to slow down with number eight here in a moment. The scriptures correlate corporate worship to the spiritual health of God's people. The scriptures correlate public worship, corporate worship, to the spiritual health of God's people. If you read through, there are plenty of examples, but I'll just focus on Kings and Chronicles for the moment. If you look through Kings and Chronicles, it's amazing how often we see this king was an evil king. King, And then the very next comment is, he did not destroy the high places. The places of corrupt worship. And by the way, very often it was Christian worship. It was worship of Yahweh. It was worship of the true God, but it was done badly. It was Cain-like worship rather than Abel-like worship. Worship offered to God, but worship done in a way that was not acceptable to God. In those same books of Kings and Chronicles, when we see a good king mentioned, what we see in relation to the good king is almost always he took down the high places, he got rid of the bad worship, he reinstituted the the festivals and the holy uh, uh, days in Jerusalem, he was attentive to right worship, and almost always there's a description of how he cared about the temple and he restored it and he renewed the sacrifices at the temple. The things that pointed to the Christ, the things that looked forward to the Messiah, were a priority in the life of the people when their spiritual health was good. Now, it's hard to sort out which causes which. 
Did the spiritual health of the people go downhill and that's why worship was polluted? Or was it because of the pollution of worship the spiritual health went downhill? I think the Kings and Chronicles leave it vague for a reason. Those two things are interconnected. They're related to one another. The spiritual health of God's people is often correlated to the corporate worship of God's people. Finally, and I think I would argue perhaps most importantly, this is why we're going to slow down and spend a little more time here. Worship is formative. Worship is formative. It forms us. It makes us who we are. Some years ago, my sister was asked to be the parent representative on the local school district's hiring committee. And she, while while very active in her children's schools, hiring was something altogether new to her. And I remember her expressing this, this wonder about, what am I supposed to bring to the table? What do I add to this committee? If I recall correctly, one of the hirees was to be a math teacher. Math was not my sister's subject. She has some strengths. Math was not among them. And she wondered to herself, well, how am I supposed to judge whether or not this person is a good math teacher? And she realized that her job on the committee was not to evaluate their mathematical skill. It was not to evaluate their teaching skill. The value she brought was this. She needed to sit and to study each of those candidates. And she needed to ask this question. If my children turn out like him or her, will I be okay with that? My children are going to spend time in this person's classroom. And if my children become like this person, will I be okay with that? You see, we become like the people we spend time Around. It is a biblical concept. Jesus himself in Luke 6.40 says, Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. We become like those we admire. We become like the coaches and teachers, the professors and peers, and of course, our parents. We take on the traits and behaviors of those whom we respect and spend time around. And thus, we come now to what I might call the sermon text, although we've had many good sermon texts already. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Hear now the word of Almighty God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The common thread throughout history that the Jews were often mocked because they claimed to have a God, but nobody could see their God. Verse 4, their idols, the other people, those who are mocking us, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. What did we hear from Isaiah in our our Old Testament reading? It's it's a mockery, it's a joke that you take a piece of wood and out of half of it you cook your dinner and out of the other half you bake your God. How absurd. 
Okay? Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Now listen to this next verse. Look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What you worship is what you become. Let's now look at how he turns and reflects on the God of Israel. Verse 9. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their, salva- their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Listen to this next one. Don't think it's just for Israel. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Shaped by him, formed by him, not by this deaf, dumb, and useless idol. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord nor do any who go down into silence. I think that means they're both the the dead who are still living, the living dead, and then also those who are ultimately dead. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You know, we are fond of calling ourselves homo sapiens, the Latin term for the human being, Homo meaning human, sapien meaning thinker or reasoner, the reasoning human. It's not the best term. We are perhaps more properly called homo adorans, homo adorans, human worshipers, the worshiping human being. That's what really forms us. We would like to think that it's our thinking that forms us, but it's what we adore what we find drawn to, what we have, our affections are pointed toward, that affects how we think. And therefore how we... So maybe our thinking does control us to some degree, but underlying that is the thing we adore, the thing we worship. We are homo adorans, worshiping people. You know, we saw in our New Testament reading, how is it said there? Jesus says in Matthew, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then at another time, how does he teach about this idea of treasure and heart? The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What is Jesus teaching? He's teaching that which you treasure, that which you adore, that where you set your affection, is going to change your heart. And then out of that is going to be what you are. He says you are homo adorans. You are worshiping people. 
what you treasure, what you care about, what you adore, is going to affect who you are. Lord willing, this fall, we are going to be looking at the book of Genesis, and therefore we'll delve into this a little more fully then, but right now I just want to briefly point this out. Creation, though morally perfect, was incomplete. Ever stop to think about that? God created the world incomplete. He wants a world filled with people, filled with worshipers, but he creates two people and leaves it to them to fulfill. We saw last week that the ultimate destiny of mankind is a city, of the redeemed mankind, is a city. But he put us in a garden and said, get about the business of making civilization. Rule over and subdue, have dominion over the earth. God left the creation incomplete because we were created in his image and part of our job as image bearers was to continue his work. And to keep on doing that which he had created us to do. And one of the things that was left incomplete was our knowledge of good and evil. We often think only about that tree with regard to having eaten of it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we think only that it brings evil because we ate of it. But we forget, had we obeyed and not eaten of it, it would have brought knowledge of goodness of holiness, of righteousness. We would have understood what it meant to be obedient as we were created to be. And so in the midst of our incompleteness, we sinned, and sin disrupted our development as human beings. And our fellowship with God was broken, and we were booted out of the garden. We have an inherent problem. We are not who we were created to be. And we've lost the fellowship with the one who could show us. And that is why worship matters. It's because this is where we come and spend time with Jesus. He's the only perfect human being. He's the only one who has become what we were all supposed to become without the deity. He alone can show us the way to be what we're supposed to be. And it's when we spend time with him, when we hear about him, when we hear from him, when he directs us what to believe, when he directs us what to do, when he directs us how to organize the church, when he directs us how to sing songs of praise, when we spend time with him in worship, we will become more like him. Becky is a sweetheart because she spent so much time around sweet people. I have wonderful in-laws. To the degree that she isn't so, well, that's on me. I think and talk and act like a scientist because I spent so many years around scientists. And so one of the things we want to accomplish is that we would spend time with Jesus, around Jesus, next to Jesus, hearing from Jesus, so that we will become like Jesus. Jesus. 
Isn't it interesting how long married couples begin to reflect each other and look like each other? Because they've spent so much time around each other. As parents, when our teenagers start to hang out with the wrong crowd, why are we worried about it? Because they're going to become like that crowd. Why is the church built upon the foundation of the apostles? Because the apostles spent time with Jesus. And they knew him. Why is it that Paul can say to both the the Corinthians and the Thessalonians, be like me, imitate me? Because he was so steeped in Jesus that he was beginning to look like Jesus. Why is it the few times that my brother has visited, you all knew instantly that he was my brother? Because we look alike, well, that's got some genetic things, but we talk alike, we think alike, we inter- because we spend so much time together that we have taken on similar characteristics and qualities. It's in seeing Jesus, in hearing him, in being with him, in being around him, that we will become like That we will become what we were created to become. How does John say it? How is it that our ultimate uh, glorification and our final sanctification is accomplished? 1 John 3, 2. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. To the degree that we do that now, we begin that process now. Worship is why we exist. Worship is what we are destined for. Worship is the reason we have been redeemed. Worship is commanded. Right worship takes training. The scriptures spend a lot of time on the subject of worship. Worship correlates to the church's health. But perhaps most of all, worship is formative. It shapes and molds and crafts there's some implications of that as we consider this sermon series this summer with some things we need to realize what's not going to be this is not going to be a summer in defense of the way shore harvest church does worship as we study the word of god together as we go through this together we may realize that we're doing some things wrong convicted by the word of god we may need to change. No particular plan. I don't say that because I know something that we're going to change. But we have to be open to that. For this is not a time to become like each other. It's a time to become like Jesus. And if we consider worship, if the word directs us to do otherwise, we need to do otherwise. This is not, I hope, I pray, and elders guard the church. This is not a time to become like Scott Shaw. This cannot be a a summer of my personal preferences with regard to worship. For if you spend time with me and become more like me, that's a problem. Hopefully by the power of the Spirit of God through me, you will be spending time with God and becoming more like Jesus. I also want to say this is not 
the musings of an expert. I do not come here and say, I am going to dump out for you all of my perfected knowledge of corporate worship. But rather, it is a time where we will go through these things together. As you pray, as you hear, as you listen, as you reflect, as you consider the Word of God, feel free to bring up to me or the elders insights that you have. Share with us what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're learning through the Word of God. We need to work through these doctrines together. If we are right about this thesis, that worship shapes us, it forms us, then our worship must be Bible-based, Christ-centered, God-led worship, so that we become the people we were created to be. Image-bearers, restored and renewed and redeemed. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider worship this summer, we ask that you would lead us in the right way so that we would not become like the idols of this world. We would not become, like the psalmist said, and be deaf and dumb like the idols, but rather we would become true, living, fully uh, functioning fully realized human beings formed into the image of Jesus because we are spending time with him, hearing from him, learning about him. Let us reflect on worship this summer and in so doing, set a foundation that will put us on a right path for the rest of our time on this earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.